You have a home, don't you? Well, the concept of home involves more than just where you live. Have you ever thought about God's home? Here's Barbara Rainey. I've noticed through the years that the Bible talks a good bit about dwelling places, about homes. In the Old Testament, God's residence on earth was a tabernacle. You remember they built that tent and they carried it around the wilderness and they rolled it up and they carried it and reset it up all over the place. And then during Solomon's reign, they built an actual physical temple that never moved. It sat in one place. So when Jesus came and walked around the earth, he actually occupied a physical place on the planet. In fact, Jesus' name, Emmanuel, means God with us. But there was more change coming. Today, we'll explore the amazing ways God relates to his people, including making us his home. Welcome to Ever Thine Home with Barbara Rainey, a podcast dedicated to helping you experience God in your home. Thanks for listening. Chances are pretty high that I haven't met you, but I still know something about you. Doesn't matter what you do or how you decorate your house or where you live or if you have children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or if you're single or married, I know that you are thirsty. That's right, you're thirsty. And by that I mean this, there's a need deep within your soul. This is true for every human being We're all born with this need. Something's missing. Nothing in the world satisfies it. Oh, we try all sorts of things. We do the best we can to arrange our circumstances or manipulate people or buy things or bite and scratch our way to the top in life, but nothing ever really fills the emptiness. Nothing's ever enough. Nothing that is until, well, That's what Barbara is going to talk about today, how God is enough. She gave this message a few years ago to a group of women at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Let's listen. Here's Barbara Rainey. How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia to your children? Or you've read it yourself? Most of you, but not everybody. Okay, this is going to be fun because some of you are going to hear... Hear one of my favorite authors um, and something that he's written that I think is just as good for adults as it is for kids. So I brought my, my Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe book, and I'm going to read us a little story this morning. Everybody loves to be read to, right? So this is the story of four children who found their way into another land through the back of a wardrobe. And they were there, and here's what happened in chapter 7. Shh, look, said Susan. What, said Peter? There's something moving among the trees. Over there, to the left. They all stared as hard as they could, and no one felt very comfortable. There it goes again, Susan said presently. I saw it that time too, said Peter. It's still there, just behind that big tree. What is it, asked Lucy, trying very hard not to sound nervous. She was the youngest. They all saw it this time, a whiskered furry face which had looked out at them from behind the tree. But this time, it didn't draw back immediately. Instead, the animal put its paw against his mouth just as humans put their finger on their lips when they're signaling you to be quiet. Then it disappeared again. The children all stood holding their breath. A moment later, the stranger came out from behind the tree and glanced around as if it were afraid someone was watching. Hush, he said. I know what it is, said Peter. It's a beaver. I saw the tail. It wants us to go with him, said Susan. It's warning us not to make a noise. I know, said Peter. So the children got close together and walked up to the tree, and there, sure enough, they found the beaver. The beaver said to them, Are you the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve? It said, We're some of them, said Peter. Shh, said the beaver. Not so loud. We're not safe, even here. Why? What are you afraid of, said Peter. There's no one here but ourselves. There are the trees, said the beaver. They're always listening. Then it signaled to the children to stand as close as they possibly could, so their their faces were actually tickled by his whiskers. They say Aslan is on the move, he said. Perhaps he has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. 
None of the children knew who Aslan was, any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Shh, said Mr. Beaver, not here. I must bring you where we can have a real talk and also some dinner. So the children followed Mr. Beaver to his little home built out of sticks. They crawled in the home, and Mrs. Beaver was there cooking dinner. And they sat down, and they all had dinner, and they talked. And after dinner was over, they said together, Yes, please tell us about Aslan. Several said at once, for once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring and like good news, had come over them. Who is Aslan? said Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, you don't know. He's the king. He's the lord. He's the lord of the whole wood, but he's not often here, you understand. Never in my time or in my father's time, but word has reached us that he will come back. He is in Narnia, and he will make everything right. But shall we see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's exactly why I brought you here. I'm to lead you to him, said Mr. Beaver. Is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, a great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what we said to you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good, I tell you. He is the king. He is the king. So we're going to talk about this God of ours, who is good. He is very good, but he isn't always safe. And all my life, I've wanted a safe God. I don't know about you, but I've wanted a safe God that I could understand, a God I could figure out, a God I could kind of put a formula to or some kind of system of rules to so I knew how he worked, so it made sense to me. And I've learned the truth of Mr. Beaver's words, that our God is very good, but he is also not always safe. But I have learned that he is enough for my past and for my present and for my future. So this morning we're going to look at three different scripture verses about God the Father, one about God the Son, and about God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We're going to look at who they really are, and we want to, I'm hoping that as we do this, we will be humbled before their majesty and we will be led to worship. First, um, we're going to talk about God the Son and that he is enough for your past. God the Son is enough for your past. And we're going to look at a passage in the book of John. But before we do that, I want to tell you that there's a context to this passage. In fact, there's a context to all of the ones we're going to read because all of Scripture is written in the context of other things that are happening. And there are two things of context that I want you to be aware of as we read it. The first one is the word believe. There are 84 uses of the word believe in the book of John. That's a lot of repetitions of one word. Jesus uses the word believe over and over again as a line in the sand, asking everyone in various ways, who do you believe that I am? There's no middle ground with Jesus on belief. Either we believe or we don't believe. We're in unbelief. And in the context of our lives, where we find ourselves today, Jesus is still asking us today, who do you believe that I am? Interestingly, I looked up the word believe, and in the Greek, it's, it's a feminine verb. And I find it fascinating. I'm still hoping I can get to do some study on this more someday. But English doesn't have masculine and feminine assignments to all of our words. Our words are just what they are. But there are a lot of languages that have masculine and feminine verbs, masculine and feminine adjectives and adverbs and nouns. Spanish does, Greek does, French does, a lot of them do. So in Greek, the word believe is a feminine noun. It means a conviction of truth. It means believing in God and divine things with the idea of trusting and having holy fervor. And it reminds me of the story of the, woman, the women who went to the tomb on Sunday morning. I think the women have a, had a greater capacity to believe 
And I think that's a part of the reason why the word believe is a feminine noun, because I think we do. I think that's why Eve believed the serpent. I think we have a greater capacity to believe. Now, nobody has told me this who's a great theologian, but as I've looked at, looked at the way we're wired, the way we, we operate, one of the greatest gifts my husband says I've ever given to him is that I believe in him, and I've always believed in him. I believe in my children, and that belief empowers and fuels and strengthens those that we love. And I think that the women who went to the tomb, their faith in who Jesus was was rewarded when they saw him first. I think Jesus honored and recognized their faith. They're quick to believe in him faith when they went to the tomb. So the word, of, the word belief is a part of the context of the story in John. And then secondly, this story is in John chapter nine, so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there now. But the timing of this story is really interesting. It's the halfway point of Jesus' ministry. Two months earlier, Jesus had just been in Jerusalem, and he had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, he had claimed to be the light of the world, which created a ruckus among the Pharisees. But he had stood up and said, I am the light of the world. Well, this story in John chapter 9 is happening um, in the month of December. And then this month is the Feast of Lights, the, feast, the Festival of Lights. And it's, we call it Hanukkah, or we know it is Hanukkah. So we're going to look at the story of John chapter 9 real quickly. Verse 1 says, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. I want to talk for a couple of minutes about this man who was blind from birth. First of all, Jesus saw this man. The man didn't see him because he was blind. He couldn't see. But Jesus saw this man, saw his need, saw his heart, recognized who he was, and he knew, because he was fully God, that this man had been blind from birth. He knew that he needed help. Now, think about this man in his, in his life growing up. If he was born without sight, how did he function in the world? He had to have help for everything. So from the time he was born, he was dependent on people for everything, for his food, for his clothing, for his sustenance, for everything. This man was needy. When we look at the passage, we think he was probably of age, which meant he was probably 30 because he was allowed to go into the temple. He was grown. And I thought about how did he feel as a kid growing up, or how did he feel as a teenager, or even as a young man? And I would imagine he felt left out. My guess is there were times he was rejected. I think there were probably times he was made fun of. There were probably times when he was not allowed among the community of believers, because in those days, anyone who had something wrong with them was unclean, and they were cast out. And I'm wondering if he was trying to get well. Did he have hope anymore that he would get well? I don't know, but he'd always been this way. So I think it's entirely possible that he had no hope of ever being healed. I wonder if he had lost his initiative. So in this story, just in verse one, we see that this man did not take the initiative, but Jesus took the initiative to reach to him, which is what he has done in all of our lives. We love because he first loved us. Jesus loved this man and he reached out to him. Verse two, and his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And I just love this because this is so who we are. The disciples wanted to know, not are you going to heal him? Not what are you thinking about this man? They wanted to know whose fault it was. Why did they want to know whose fault it was? because they wanted to avoid a similar fate. And I think it's an issue of control, quite frankly. They, don't, they didn't trust God, we don't trust God, because we think we can manage this. We think we can control the circumstances if we just figure out what's really going on below the surface. And then verse three, Jesus answered and said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. He didn't rebuke them for asking the question. He let them ask the question and he turned it and showed them what the truth was. And the truth was, is that God wanted his glory to be seen. He wanted those who were there to watch Jesus' power and who he really was. 
There's a verse that I think is really interesting, Exodus 4:11, And the verse says this, God said to Moses, who made man's mouth? Or who makes him dumb or deaf? Or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Who was behind this man's blindness? It wasn't the parent's fault. It wasn't the man's fault. It was God who had his glory in mind. It was God who wanted to do something to demonstrate who he was to people. God intentionally made this man blind. That kind of sits wrong with us, doesn't it? Because we think of our God as a good God, and he is a good God. But this is where he's not always safe. God intentionally made this man blind. He intentionally subjected him to decades of life with a handicap, a disability, and the man suffered for it. And we don't like that kind of God, do we? But the reason he did it, Jesus makes it really clear in verse three, because God had a higher purpose in mind to display his glory. And as I thought about it, I thought if the man had been born whole, he would have never experienced the wonder of being healed. He wouldn't have appreciated it. But he lived with this blindness for so long that when Jesus healed him, he was exuberant. If you read the rest of the chapter, he couldn't stop talking about it. He was jumping up and running around and telling everyone what had happened to him, and we would too, right? The man knew he was blind and he understood his need for healing. Now, I wanna turn this to us. What handicap were you born with that has never left you since birth? My handicap was not anything physical that could be seen or measured like blindness or deafness. My handicap, I always felt like, was that I was shy and I was insecure and I was quiet and I, didn't, I wasn't comfortable with people. And I remember going through high school and noticing people who were really popular and they had fun and they talked easily. And I remember thinking, why can't I be more like those people? Why can't I be like those friends of mine that I knew that I'd probably been in elementary school with? Why can't I be like that? And I tried to be different and I couldn't break out of my shell. And it followed me all of my life. And I always felt like if I didn't have this, if I wasn't made this way, if I wasn't made to be cautious and quiet and think things through, if I could be more like these other people, I would be happier. I would have more fun. People would like me. I could be popular. I remember one day, years later, I was married, I had kids, and I was still struggling with this and feeling insecure, and I just didn't like the way I was. And I was driving somewhere, and I just had this thought out of the blue, which of course was... God himself, the Holy Spirit. And he, he reminded me that it was important for me to be that way. He said, you don't know what you escaped. You don't know what you were saved from because you were not a part of that group of kids that you longed to be a part of. And I went, yes, Lord, you're right. I shared this story with a group of women about a month and a half ago at a, at a retreat and one of the ones in the group, as we, we all shared, it was a much, much smaller retreat, and we all shared what our handicap was. And one woman said, I always felt like the odd person in my family because everybody else in my family, all my other siblings were just like my parents, and I was so different from anyone else. I always felt like the odd one out. I felt like I was a mistake my whole life. And it was a really powerful time of sharing what we have felt trapped by our entire lives. So I want you to think for a second, what were you born with that you have wished all of your life was not a part of who you are? Write that down on your notes if you know what it is. You may never see the reason why God did this in your life this side of heaven. You may never experience dramatic healing like the man born blind, but you can know without question that God did not make a mistake in your life. You can know he meant it for your good, and he meant it for your glory, that the works of God might be displayed in you. The story of the man born blind finishes with Jesus going and finding this man and asking him, do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man who was now seeing said, yes, I believe. And he fell on his face and he worshiped Jesus. So my question for you and for me, will you be like the blind man who recognized his need who believed God intended good for him, 
or will you be like the disciples who wanted control? Number two, our second story is going to show us God the Father is enough for our present tense, for our todays, every day. When Dennis and I were raising our kids, one of the things that we did pretty regularly is we went out for a weekly date night. It was life for me. Um, it was the two to three hour block I could count on every week where I could talk in complete sentences without being interrupted by somebody with something. <clears throat> so my encouragement to all of you who are still raising kids is to do a date night. And you may not make it every week, but if you make three out of four weeks in a month, that's better than none. Um, it was truly a lifesaver for us. So one night we went out for our weekly date night. We always did Sunday night because our church um, didn't have Sunday night services. And that was the easiest night for us to get away that was usually open on the calendar. And we, at that time, only had two left at home. The others were either in college or already out of college and married. So we had two teenagers left at home. They were 14 and 15. And as we walked out the door for our weekly date night, we said to the girls, to the two girls, now, you've got homework to do. We want you to do your homework. We want you to get your work done. And then you can read a book. But no TV. Got it? Oh, yeah, sure, we got it. So Dennis and I walked out the door. And as we walked out the door, I called over my shoulder before the door slammed. I said, don't forget. What did I say? No TV, right? Got it, no TV. So Dennis and I went to dinner. We were gone about three hours, maybe four, I don't know. We came home, and as we were coming in, Dennis said to me, he looked at me and he said, I'm gonna turn the lights off on the car. And let's just kind of slide in quietly, stealth, and see, let's just check on the girls. So he turned off the lights, and we rolled down the hill real quietly, turned the car in apart. Of course, they didn't know we were there because they didn't see anybody coming. We got out of the car and we walked around to the front of the house and our sidewalk went across the front and we stopped in front of the dining room windows and we looked in the dining room windows and there through the dining room windows and beyond the dining room was our kitchen. And in the dining room windows, we could see this bright blue glow. <laughs> it was a dead giveaway. And as we looked, we could see they were propped up in the kitchen glued to the television. So Dennis said to me, he said, you stay here and keep watching them through the window. I'm gonna go around back, come in the back door, and you see what happens. I said, great. This is one of those times when parents get the upper edge. It just, it felt so good. I have to tell you, it felt so good because I can't tell you how many times we had no idea who did what, who was right, who the guilty party was, and this time we were, we knew. There was no dispute. So he walked around to the back door, opened the door, jingled his keys real loud and said, girls, we're home. And I mean, they jumped as quick as they could. And the TV went off, the books were open, they were sitting there, <laughs> studious, just little angels, little angels. And he walked in and he said, girls, how was your evening? Great, great, great. So did you get your homework done? Yeah, yeah, we're working on it, you know. And did you watch any TV? What do you think they said? Oh, no, we didn't watch any TV. He said, are you sure? No, Dad, we didn't watch any TV. Okay, he said, I want you to turn around, look over your shoulder, and look out that window, and I want you to wave at your mom. She's been standing there watching you watch TV. <laughs> they were toast. <laughs> So we, I came in and we had a little conversation about it. And we decided, Dennis and I decided, that we were going to ground them for a month. First of all, they broke the rule. They were not supposed to, to watch TV, and they did. And then secondly, they lied about it. In our house, lying was a big, big deal. And for those of you who are parenting, here's my second tip. First, have date nights. And my second suggestion and my second tip is one of our standards for what we disciplined for in our house was lying. And it comes from Proverbs chapter six that says, these six things the Lord hates. And then it says, yes, seven. And a lying tongue is one of the six things, seven things that God hates. And so we decided as parents early on, real early on, that we were gonna discipline our kids for the things that God says he hates. And God says he hates a lying tongue. And he also says he hates a haughty spirit and hands that shed innocent blood. And to me, that meant kids that bite and hit and that kind of thing. And so those are the things we discipline for. So they knew 
that lying was at the top of one of the things at the top of the list. So we grounded them for an entire month. They weren't happy. Obviously, they felt like it was unfair. They felt like we were kind of over the top in grounding them for an entire month. They ne- tried to negotiate with us. They're going, well, gosh, didn't, we didn't talk, we didn't watch it for that long, you know, that kind of thing. Do your kids ever do that? <laughs> negotiate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Do you ever negotiate with God? Hmm. Well, I want us to look at a passage in the Old Testament. So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 45. I love this chapter in the Old Testament. And the context for this chapter is prophecy. In this chapter, God is foretelling something that's going to happen hundreds of years in the future. And in this chapter, he repeats a statement about himself four times. And this is what I want us to look at. And so turn to chapter Isaiah 45, and we're going to start in verse 22. And I'm going to read backwards, which we don't normally do, but I have a reason for it. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's the repeated phrase. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and established it. He made it and did not create it a waste place. I am the Lord and there is none other. Number two. Number three is verse five. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And then in verse six, he says, that men may know from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun that there is no one God besides me. Four times God says it. And then he finishes at the end of verse six and says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Now, I want us to read verse seven together. Ready? And it comes after the end of verse six. It's actually a a continuation of verse six because verse six doesn't end with a period. It ends with a comma. I am the Lord and there is no other. Comma. The one forming light and creating darkness causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. How did that make you feel when you read that? Maybe you've read that for the first time. I read it for the first time maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I am the Lord who creates darkness, who causes well-being and creates calamity. I didn't like that so much. That felt really disconcerting to me. It was stunning. It was shocking. It's like, God creates calamity? For years, I thought that the only person who created calamity was Satan. And I thought it only happened to bad people, not good people. And I certainly didn't think God created calamity. The thing that's interesting to me about this verse, well, a bunch of things are interesting. One is, is that I looked up the word calamity it's a Hebrew adjective. It means bad. It means adversity. It means affliction. It's like, okay, it means what I think it means. And then I looked up create and cause. And those two words mean to fashion or to make or to accomplish. So create calamity means just what it says. Just like our teenage daughters who felt our discipline was harsh, it was a calamity in their lives. But we gave it to them for their good because we knew that they needed it. Our teenagers felt like their suffering, which was caused by us for a whole month, was too extreme. They felt it was too unfair. But we had a higher good in mind. We were training them in righteousness. And it's a great reminder to me of my relationship with God. I view things that he does oftentimes as bad. I don't like it. It feels unfair. It feels extreme. But God says, I have a higher good in mind. I always have a higher good in mind. He is always working for us for our good. At the heart of Isaiah 45, 7 is the question of God's sovereignty. Is he in control or not? It's a question we have to wrestle with and answer. Do we believe he is in control or not? And then the second question is, does he have the authority to decide what is good and what is not good? We think we have the authority to decide what's good and not good. But God is the one who is in charge. And here's the third question. Can he do something that feels bad to us and still be loving? 
And the answer is yes. Because we did something that felt really bad to our girls. They didn't like it. They, they were restricted. It felt bad to them. It felt like a calamity to them. But we did it because we loved them. We had good in mind for them. We had a higher purpose in mind for them. And so God does for us. I'm gonna read you something that was, um, that's written in a Hebrew commentary that really was, I think it's so well written about this verse. Just to put some of you, your, you at ease in your thinking, because this help, this will say it much better than I can say it. God does not just allow darkness and calamity and then blame someone else. He creates the problems of human history. Evil is not outside of God's control. He uses it without being dirtied by it. Let's stop trying to rescue God from a problem he created for himself by claiming full mastery over all things. Let's not relieve God of his responsibilities as king of the universe. Isn't that good? The very thing that we humans perceive as a problem, God perceives as his glory. God owns the dark moments of life. I love that. God owns the dark moments of life. He bends everything around for his saving purpose. When Isaiah wrote this so long ago, he did not overlook, overlook a problem or a difficulty that we brainy modern people happen to notice. We tend to think that way, don't we? We think we're a whole lot smarter than those people who lived back in the Old Testament times. Isaiah 45, seven is not an embarrassment. It's what we love about God. Not even evil can frustrate him and his surprising strategies are our assurance. He is proving to us that I am the Lord and there is no other. So I hope that encourages you and comforts you and helps you make peace with this God of ours who is very, very good, but who also isn't always safe. None of us know what the rest of today will bring. None of us know what the next hour will bring. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We woke up with plans for our day this morning, didn't we? We knew what we were gonna do next. We knew where we were gonna go. We know what time we're gonna leave here this morning. Someone else once woke up with plans for the day, thinking that everything was gonna go as planned. And his name was Job. He got up one day expecting the usual. And by the time his day was over, everything in his life had changed. And I used to not be a fan of Job. But I have really come to appreciate um, so much about this man and what he did in his response. His response at the end of his day when he learned that everything in his life had been taken away and ruined, all his children, all his livelihood, all his stock, his animals, everything was gone. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He did not blame God. And the thing that I find remarkable about this is that he said the Lord has taken away. He didn't say Satan has taken away. He knew that God was ultimately in control. God was in charge. God was sovereign. God was the one who took all of that away. And he worshiped and praised him even though it hurt and he didn't like it, he praised God because he knew God had good in mind. And I want that to be my response. When I read those verses, when I read what Job said, I want that to be my response when hard things come in my life. I don't mean to frighten any of you with this because I used to be frightened by Job's story. I didn't wanna read it, kinda like the disciples. I didn't wanna get close because I didn't want any of that to happen to me. I didn't like his story. I didn't like reading about calamity and hard things because I didn't want to be touched by it. I wanted to be comfortable and I wanted to be pain-free in my life. So I'm not intending to frighten you. I don't want anyone to walk out of here scared to death about the shoe dropping or whatever. But what I do want you to see is that when the day of calamity does come, he will be enough for you in that day. He has been enough for me in a lot of calamities in my life. And I have learned that he is enough. And that's the most important thing for you to take away from here today, 
is that there will be hard times. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus doesn't lie. There are hard things. And he wants us to know that he will be enough no matter what he brings our way. And if he is enough for the day of calamity, he will be enough for my today, for my next hour, for this afternoon, for tonight. He will be enough for today. So my question for you is, will you choose to believe that he is always acting with good and loving purposes for you? Will you see him as he really is, not as you want him to be? And that was a big adjustment for me because I wanted God to be a certain way. I wanted him to be safe. And when I began to see that he isn't always safe, it was good for me to see God as he really is. Number three, God the Holy Spirit is enough for my future. God the Holy Spirit is enough for my future. Um, I've noticed through the years that the Bible talks a good bit about dwelling places, about homes. In the Old Testament, God's residence on earth was a tabernacle. You remember they built that tent and they carried it around the wilderness and they rolled it up and they carried it and reset it up all over the place. And then during Solomon's reign, they built an actual physical temple that never moved. It sat in one place. And in that temple, God's presence lived in a particular room called the Holy of Holies. So God's presence was in one place physically on earth. But in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in John 1, 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when Jesus came and walked around the earth, he actually occupied a physical place on the planet and his presence was way beyond that little square room inside the temple. God's presence was all over the land of Israel. God wasn't confined anymore to one room. In fact, Jesus' name, Emmanuel, means God with us. But there was more change coming. Turn to John 14, and we're gonna read some verses from the Last Supper. The context for these verses is Jesus' last words to his disciples. His, the end of his life was near. In fact, it was only 24 hours away. This was his last meal, and these were his last words to his dearest friends on earth. And in those last words, he introduced us to a new dwelling place that he was going to give. John 14, 16, and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Forever. Jesus knew he was leaving, but he wanted to give them someone who would be with them forever. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. If you have a Bible that you can underline in and maybe you can do it on your phone. I don't know how to do that yet. But in my real Bible, I have underlined with you and in you, both with you and in you. Jesus knew that the next day, he was gonna be on the cross and he was gonna be gone. And he knew his disciples were gonna feel abandoned and forsaken. In fact, in the next verse, verse 18, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. He knew they were gonna feel like orphans the next day on Good Friday. So he promised them that he was going to send someone who would be with them forever. And I love the concept of those two phrases in verse 17. He will be with you and in you. So Jesus is here with me. He's all around me. He's before me. He's beside me. He's behind me. He's above me. He goes before me, but he's also in me. And I think today as Christians, we're so used to that concept that we just kind of go, yeah, okay, he's with me. But think about the magnitude of that, of the God of the universe, the creator coming in to live within me so that he's not just next to me, but he's in me. I'm standing here with Jesus in me. The spirit of Christ is in me and he's in every one of you, with you. He's next to you and he's in you. And that's a concept that I think we, we need to understand more. We need to appreciate more. We need to ask him to reveal how important that is to us. Paul explained this whole concept more clearly <clears throat> when he wrote that our bodies are the temple, the dwelling place of God's spirit. 
In 2 Corinthians 6.16, he said, Paul wrote, for we are the temple of the living God. We forget sometimes that God is living. The living God lives within me and he lives within you. C.S. Lewis wrote this little, this little paragraph about us being the temple and I, I really have loved it. He wrote, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. He's come into all of us, right? He's living in every single one of us and he wants to rule. He wants to be on the throne. He wants to change all of our lives. He wants to fix our houses. So, you, th you think you understand what he's doing. You go, okay, I need some changing. I need some fixing up. Yeah, I've got some problems that need to be fixed. And you watch what he's doing. And C.S. Lewis writes it this way. You think you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing. And so you're not too terribly surprised. You're actually kind of glad that he is. But presently, he starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts abominably. And it does not seem to make any sense to you whatsoever. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is, he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. He's throwing up a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor. He's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace that he intends to live in himself. And I love that description because he wants a palace. And so often I'm content with being who I am and who I want to be instead of realizing that my body, my person, who I am is the temple, the dwelling place. And it, he wants it to be a palace for his presence. So I want you all to look with me for a few minutes um, at the Holy Spirit. I don't think we talk nearly enough about the Holy Spirit I don't think we understand who he is. Um, we think of him as a ghost, and he's not. He's the third person of the Trinity. So I want to introduce you a little bit more to the Holy Spirit in the time we have left. The Holy Spirit is enough for my tomorrows because he lives within me. He will never leave me, and he will never forsake me. So I can know that no matter what tomorrow brings, or next week brings, or next month, or next year, or 10 years from now, he is never gonna leave me, so he is enough for my tomorrows. The Holy Spirit is my dearest friend and companion. I have learned to talk to him all the time throughout my days because he is always with me. It is he who lives within me. It is the Spirit of Christ who dwells inside of me. He is our helper. We just read a verse where Jesus promised that he was the helper. He is our teacher. He said he will teach you all things. He is our friend. Number four, he is our guide. Uh, in chapter 15, it, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will be your guide. And I talk to him all the time as my guide. I say, Holy Spirit, my guide, I need you to show me what to do. I need you to lead me. I need you to show me what is next for me to do. I love that he is my guide. He is our purifier. In John 16, it talks about, Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. It's a part of making our home, our body, our temple into a pure and holy dwelling place for the Spirit of God. He is our pledge. He's our promise of things to come. He is our life. In Romans 8, 11, it talks about how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us life. He is our power. Jesus said this in Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will give you power. He wants us to be aware of the power. He wants us to use his power. In Romans, he is our intercessor. The Holy Spirit is constantly praying for us. And I am so, so grateful because there are many, many times in my life when I don't know what to pray, I don't know what to say. And he is praying for me. He is interceding for me before the Father. And then the last one is in John 7, where Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is the living water. It means he's constantly bubbling up in my heart. He is constantly refreshing me with the living water. So I wanna ask you, are you listening for his voice? I wanna encourage you to be listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit, he whispers. So we have to be attentive, we have to be close, we have to be paying attention. 
You can't know his voice if you don't know the language he speaks. And the language that the Holy Spirit speaks is God's word. It says he will guide you into all truth, God's word. So the more you get into the Bible, the more you read his word, the more the Holy Spirit has to speak to you. So know his word. And I wanna encourage you to talk to him as a person. He is not a ghost, he is a person. I want us to pray for a minute about the Holy Spirit. And I'm gonna talk to the Holy Spirit and model for you how you can talk to the Holy Spirit too if this is not something that you're used to doing. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, my friend, my closest companion, my teacher and my guide, thank you that you never leave me or forsake me. Thank you that you are my guide. Oh, how I need you every moment of every day for my life. For I am often so lost and confused and unsure. Thank you that you will be present in my every tomorrow as promised by Jesus before the cross. Teach me to know you and to recognize your voice, to follow your leading, to let you purify and transform my selfish, broken heart. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close our session together, I wanna turn to one more verse, and it's in Romans. When I was a brand new Christian, this is one of the first verses that I ever memorized, and it continues to be an amazing verse in my life. Romans 12, one. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Here we are talking about the temple again where Jesus lives. But present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Does your body, the living dwelling place of God, does it belong to him? Does he have all of it? Does he have all of you? Are you daily surrendering to him? Surrender is not a one-time thing. We need to surrender to Christ and to the leading of the Spirit every day, every moment of every day, in every situation with our kids, in every circumstance with our husbands, in every relationship with our friends or our church or whatever it is. Surrender is a way of life. It's not a one-time event or a couple of times event. He wants us to surrender to him every day, every minute of every day. So I wanna ask, does he have access in your life to every room, every closet, every secret passageway, every back staircase, every corner of your life? Does he have access to every part of you? We're gonna finish by singing a song that's one of my very favorites. It's an old hymn, but it's one of my very favorites. And part of the reason it's my favorite, one of my favorites, is because of the story behind it. The, the hymn is, It Is Well With My Soul. I've already told Dennis I want it sung at my funeral. <laughs> um, but the story of the song, in case you don't know it, is it was written by a man named Horatio Spafford, who was a businessman in Chicago in the late 1800s. And he and his family were supposed to go to England to um, join White Moody on a crusade in England. And at the last minute, he was unable to go because of some business situations. And he said to his wife, you and the children go on ahead and I'll get the next ship. And of course, they had no planes in those days. They went by ship. So his wife and children got on this ocean liner and sailed across the Atlantic to go to England. And not far from England, um, they encountered a great storm and the ship sank, and all of his children died. But his wife lived, and she sent a telegram back that said, all lost, I'm alive, or something like that, very, very short. And so he came then on the next ship. He got the telegram, and he knew, and he came on the next ship across the ocean. And as he got to the spot where the drowning had happened, the captain came on and said, came to him and said, this is where the ship went down. This is where your, your four daughters died. And as he stood there and grieved and looked at the place where his children were now buried in the sea, he wrote the words to this song. And I have loved this song ever since I heard that story. So this 
is what I want you to take this with you because this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to know that He is enough no matter what. And when He is enough, we can say, it is well with my soul. Audrey Assad singing, It Is Well With My Soul. I love that hymn, don't you? Well, the Son is enough for our past, the Father is enough for our present, and the Holy Spirit is enough for our future. Those are powerful reminders that we've been listening to today from Barbara Rainey, speaking not too long ago at a conference in Asheville, North Carolina. Well, it is appropriate at this time of year to be reminded of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. This Sunday, May 23rd, 2021, is Pentecost Sunday. Now, Pentecost is the Jewish festival that takes place 50 days after Passover. But if you remember your New Testament well, you know Pentecost is also the day the Holy Spirit came on the first Christians. In a sense, it was the inauguration of the church. A lot of times we don't really talk much about that amazing day recorded in the opening pages of the book of Acts. Some churches commemorate Pentecost, but not many do. In fact, Barbara calls Pentecost a forgotten holiday. I want to draw your attention to an article she wrote where she spells out four ways you can celebrate Pentecost in your family. Go to everthinehome.com, click where you see search, and look up ideas for celebrating Pentecost. Again, it's everthinehome.com. Search for ideas for celebrating Pentecost. Well, thanks for listening today. May your Pentecost be full of learning and joy. We'll see you next time on Ever Thine Home with Barbara Rainey.